Welcome to Parenting Unchained, the radio show that helps parents find the joy and success God intended in the difficult work of parenting. Every week, we'll bring you sound advice that passes a three-part test. First, it must be biblical, built on the solid foundation of God's Word. Second, it must be practical. Parents must be able to put the advice to work right away. Third, it must produce long-term effect and benefit our children into their adult years. Here's our host, author, and trainer for the National Center for Biblical Parenting, Dr. Jim Dempsey. As children's pastor at our church, I don't often get to preach the Sunday sermon. Recently, though, I filled in at preaching in my church since our lead pastor was out of town. I asked the congregation to turn with me to the greatest sermon ever delivered, which is, of course, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I said it that way to the congregation on purpose to see if the listeners would know where in the Bible to find the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I, I ask questions like that to our children all the time as a children's pastor because I believe it's important for them to know how to find important things in God's Word, how to use the Bible as a practical everyday tool. And it seems to me that it's impossible to live out God's Word if we don't understand it, particularly its main themes and its components, how to find those things. So parents, you can help your children understand the big picture of the Bible by, by making sure you understand the big picture. The Sermon on the Mount's a great place to, to get a view of the big picture. It's a view of God's definition of right living, of what it means to be righteous and to become righteous. So I've titled today's message, A Radical Righteousness. The Sermon on the Mount is in some ways a redefinition of righteousness. Our human nature tends to value what looks good, but Jesus says that God values the heart, the inner qualities that really define us. In Jesus' longest sermon, that's the Sermon on the Mount, and it's found in Matthew's uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus talks about what true righteousness looks like in everyday life. And Jesus draws a strong contrast between what people generally call righteousness and what God calls righteousness. Now, we, we have different definitions than God does, right? We see the world differently, so it's no surprise that his defini- definition of righteousness is far superior to ours. If you don't get anything else out of today's message, please remember that the Sermon on the Mount calls us to a level of righteousness that is far deeper than simply an outward conformity to rules, the rules of our religion, uh, as good as they are. If we're honest, looking at Jesus' definition of righteousness, we have to admit that it's radical. It's way out of the norm. It's way beyond us, frankly. I began my sermon with this question, what kind of righteousness will let us enter the kingdom of heaven? There are five answers to this question that we're going to go through today. The first answer to the question, what kind of righteousness gets us into heaven, is one that surpasses that of the legalists. You know, Jesus constantly had the Pharisees and the scribes on his back. They couldn't help but notice the crowds that Jesus attracted, the miracles he worked, and the words he said. But they perceived Jesus as a threat. And frankly, he was a threat. Jesus was a threat to their power and to their position because they had become legalists and no longer were faithful shepherds. They followed the letter of the law, but they missed the law's true purpose. The righteousness of the Pharisees was all for show. Here's what Jesus said to the crowd in Matthew 5.20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the kind of righteousness that gets us to heaven is, first of all, one that surpasses 
the righteousness of the legalists. Rule following is not the same as righteousness. Now, this shocked most people who heard Jesus speak in this sermon. The Pharisees, by the way, were the poster boys for righteousness. And the common people figured that those guys in their black robes and fancy-looking get-ups must really know what they were talking about. The trouble was they talked a good game, but they didn't back it up with their hearts. Now, this reminds me of the story of that little boy whose mom repeatedly told him to sit down and behave in the pew on Sunday morning. The boy would sit for a moment and then stand and look around, whispering loudly and distracting everyone nearby. The mom finally had to get stern, as this now was developing into a test of wills between mom and the boy. Finally, mom got the boy to sit down, and she put her hand on his shoulder to keep him there. The boy looked up at his mom and said defiantly, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. Well, that's the nature of the human heart, right? We... uh, can look good on the outside, but our hearts are corrupt. The Sermon on the Mount is remarkable in that it always points to the heart condition, not simply the outward appearance of looking right. Jesus also pointed to the value of right relationship with God and with others. Now, I wrote several chapters in my book, Parenting Unchained, about how God values relationship over rules. So the next question, or the next answer to our question, what kind of righteousness will get us into heaven, is one that puts relationship before rules. The first answer is one that is uh, greater than or surpasses the righteousness of the legalist. The second answer is it's a kind of righteousness that puts relationship before rules. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus repeatedly took Old Testament commands and interpreted them at a heart level, not simply the outward performance level. For example, consider Matthew 5, verses 21 to 24. Jesus is speaking. He says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Here Jesus teaches us not only that murder is off limits, we know that of course, but that using our words to hurt others is related to the sin of murder. It gives us the same level of guilt. In fact, Jesus says, if you recall a situation that has created a break in relationship with another Christian, you are better off making that right rather than just going on to church and doing some other act of worship. That makes our worship hollow uh, in God's eyes. If we want our worship to please God, then we must do our part to keep relationships pure and holy. Our kids need to know that too, that we don't please God when we are uh, in a wrong relationship with other people. At the same time, Jesus made it clear that the use of words to condemn and tear others down is also a major sin that deserves God's punishment or judgment. Our words are a picture into our hearts. And that leads me to the third answer to the question, what kind of righteousness will get us into heaven? Now, before discussing that answer, let me remind you that you're listening to Parenting Unchained, and I'm Dr. Jim Dempsey with the National Center for Biblical Parenting. We spend a lot of time at the National Center for Biblical Parenting talking about the heart as opposed to just behavior management. We get into this habit as parents of of trying to fix our children's behavior without addressing the heart, and that gets us off track, and it's really 
plays into the hands of Satan, who wants us to get uh, focused on outward behavior uh, and forgetting what's going on in the heart. And so the, we, that's a real focus for us at the National Center for Biblical Parenting. Uh, very often our seminars will, will address that. That's, uh, that's the focus of all the work that we do is addressing our children's hearts. Now continuing, let's look at the kind of righteousness that will get us into heaven. The third answer to that question is it's one that controls the words we speak. Um, let's look at James chapter 3 verses 2 to 10. That gives us a very clear picture of, of what I mean by that. He says, the, the brother of the Lord Jesus says, We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. And skipping on, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. It does things like a, a rudder is a small thing and steers a great ship. That's what uh, James said in that passage. He goes on to say, See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. In verse 8, But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be that way. James tell us, tells us clearly that our words reflect our hearts and that in truth we can't both bless God and with our words, curse men at the same time. It's not right and it's not righteous. Jesus then also tells us that every word we speak is being recorded and that God hears them. This is one of the scariest verses in, in Scripture to me. Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says this, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Oh man, that really grabs me because I know that I've been guilty of saying things that hurt other people. And it's so easy to do. The words just kind of come out of us uh, when we're not careful. The righteousness that God expects is one of pure speech. And very few of us have it. In fact, no one has it. None of us is 100% pure in this matter. And that leads us to the fourth answer to this question. What kind of righteousness is needed to get into heaven? Well, Number one, or number four, it is one that we can't produce. We just can't produce it on our own. We just don't have it in us if we're honest with ourselves. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43 and 44, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Skipping down to verse 48, he says, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh man, uh, these are tough, tough words from Christ to us as he redefines what it means to be righteous. The righteousness that gets us into heaven is one of perfection. And I don't know about you, but I'm short on perfection. That's just not a part of my life. As I'm uh, honest with myself, I fall so far short of these definitions of righteousness. But clearly this is the kind of righteousness that's needed to get into heaven. Anything short of perfection, as God himself is perfect, is not good enough to get into heaven. That's our dilemma. We have a problem. We have a sin problem because it disqualifies us for, right, uh, for relationship with God. So if the righteousness that gets us into heaven is one we can't produce, we've got a big problem. Thank God he had a plan and 
it's already been accomplished. The plan that God put in place, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God already had it in mind. You know, the Bible says that uh, Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Before God created anything, he knew exactly what would happen. He knew that we would need a Savior. And that brings us to the fifth and final answer to that question, what kind of righteousness will get into heaven, get us into heaven? Well, it's a kind of righteousness that must be given by Jesus and received by each one of us. Paul wrote in Romans 3, verse 10, as it is written in the Old Testament, there is none righteous, not even one. And he also wrote in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's our dilemma. None of us is righteous and none of us meets the, the standard of, uh, of God and fellowship with him. So we are all disqualified from that, from that fellowship. But I, I don't read it very often, but verse 24, Romans 3 says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So we have to be clear about the kind of righteousness that gets us into heaven. It's not one that we have on our own. It's one that is given as a gift by grace through the redemption in Christ Jesus. The blood of Christ is, our, um, is the ticket for our righteousness. Today we've heard some bad news and some good news. The bad news is that we don't have the kind of righteousness that will get us into heaven. It takes perfection, and we just don't have it. Neither you as a parent or your kids. The good news is that Jesus didn't come for the perfect. He came for sinners. Here's what Christ said in Luke 5.31 to the Pharisees. And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, the Pharisees thought they were righteous because they had kept, to the best of their ability, the laws of the Old Testament. And the truth is, the laws of the Old Testament, all of those were just evidence that we are a broken and unrighteous people. Uh, that was the lesson that, that everyone needed to learn. As we consider the answer to the question, what kind of righteousness will get us into heaven, we have to admit that it's not one that we possess. It's one that is imputed or given to us by God. In fact, Paul said, in my flesh dwells no good thing. Uh, you know, that's a stark reminder. If, if Paul, who I look at and see his sacrifice for Christ, and I know I don't measure up to him at all, but he says, in my flesh dwells no good thing, then certainly in my flesh there's nothing of, of, of account that would uh, justify Christ's death for me on the cross. We're all corrupt far more than we ourselves even know. And that makes our salvation surprising. You know, it's a surprise that Jesus came and died for us. The, the plan of, of salvation for us is not one that men could come up with. It's something that God came up with himself, and it surprises us. Jesus came for us when we were sinners, still hopelessly caught in sin that separates, separates us eternally from God. But with Christ's death on the cross, we can ask for and receive his righteousness. The big picture of the Bible is all about God's mercy far more than it is about the rules of righteousness. So parent, if you're listening to this station, you probably are already a Christian and maybe have asked Jesus to save you, but perhaps some of you have been fooled to think that you can get to heaven by your own good deeds. As we've seen today, that's not gonna happen. No one will get to the gates of heaven and 
answer God's question, why should I let you into my heaven, and say uh, honestly that my good deeds justify my getting into heaven. They just don't. You'll only get in if you have the robe of righteousness that's provided for you by Christ. As always, we want to take this great biblical truth. We spent all this time setting this biblical truth in place, and now we want to use it in our parenting. How do we help our kids develop an understanding of the big picture of the Bible, that we sin, but God's mercy is the only way to righteousness? Well, one important way we do this is in the way we discipline our kids and the way we build and maintain relationship with our kid, our kids. Too often, we discipline to achieve behavioral change rather than disciplining to achieve heart change. And we're not conscious of relationship either sometimes when we discipline. And that's the focus of the National Center for Biblical Parenting. Our seminars really focus on the heart and the ways to discipline our children that touch the heart and, and keep our relationship intact. In fact, keep relationship uh, at the pinnacle of our desire. Because sometimes as we teach our kids, it seems that our rules are more important to us. Here are seven aspects of discipline or seven ways that we must avoid in order to help kids be humble and be aware of their need for relationship with Christ. Let me go through these seven aspects of discipline. Number one, don't overindulge your child. Kids who are overindulged have an entitlement attitude that disrespects the hard work that parents do for them. That stands to reason, of course. Spoiled kids are not necessarily kids who have a lot of stuff, though. They're kids who are given things before they've developed the responsibility to handle those things that we give them. Parents must make sure that their kids have the responsibility to handle what is given to them. So as we work with our kids, we have to train responsibility uh, before we give them things. Number two, don't use a behavior modification approach to discipline. That's, that's the uh, unfortunate norm of today. If we constantly say to our kids, do this and I'll give you what you want, or if you don't obey, here's the punishment you can expect, you're using behavior modification, if that's your sole approach. Now, this approach ignores the way God made our hearts. Now, it's not totally wrong. There are times for uh, rewards and for punishment. But it's very incomplete as a parenting philosophy. Kids who are trained in this method, when you tell them this, if you do what I want, I'm going to give you this. If a child hears that often enough, they're going to begin to ask this question, what's in it for me? And that's a selfish question. That's the question of a child who's become selfish. They do everything based on the reward that is promised to them. And that's not what we want to create in our children. So number three, uh, here's another thing we don't want to do. We don't want to mechanically hand down punishments without considering the child's heart. By doing this, <clears throat> when we hand down a punishment just in a mechanical way, well, you, got, you did this, so you get this punishment, you indicate that the rule is more important than relationship. At the National Center for Biblical Parenting, we call this a justice mentality, making sure the punishment fits the crime. But that only deals with the behavior and not the heart. When we only punish when behavior is wrong and we don't consider the wrong attitudes or words that our kids use, then we lead them to believe that life is all about how we appear, how we behave on the outside. And that goes directly against the big picture of the Bible. So we need to work in a lot of effort on teaching our children about heart qualities, heart character. Number four, don't discipline differently in public than in, pri in private. <clears throat> 
There's a lot of pressure on parents to get their kids to behave in public. You know what I mean. Your kids are perfect at home, but then you go to the grocery store and they, you know, fall apart. They start to whine and complain and do all the things that you try to, uh, that you don't want them to do. But that's a test for us. Don't allow what other people think to make you more strict in public than you would be in private or to, to uh, punish differently or to behave differently. That's the wrong reason to discipline out of, out of embarrassment, uh, say. And it puts more focus on outward obedience than on inner character. I'm not saying we don't discipline our children in public. I'm saying uh, resist the urge to discipline differently uh, or to have a quicker uh, temper in public than you might in private. Just consider what's the best thing for the child at this moment and uh, take some time. I would always advise that we pray about it before we institute a consequence because God can give us great wisdom in um, creativity in providing consequences to our kids if we'll give him the time and the opportunity to do so. Number five, don't discipline only because we don't want to be disturbed. That's kind of a selfish attitude on our part. Now, there are legitimate times that, we, that our kids should respect us and not bother us with questions or foolish behavior, like when we're on the phone. That's not a time that we want our kids to, to interrupt us. However, discipline is what we sign up for when we have kids, so don't be surprised that your kids need to be disciplined at all hours and at all times. Be careful not to value your agenda more than your child's character development, and that takes time. It takes effort on the part of a parent. Kids look to you for what is important in life. And if you discipline uh, only motivated by your convenience, then kids will think that God is motivated by convenience or appearance, and he's not. He's only motivated by what's best for us at any given time. Number uh, six, spend more time and attention on the rules of behavior than on building relationship. Now, <laughs> That, that's what not to do. Don't spend more time and attention on the rules of behavior than on the building of relationship. When you do that, you're, you're emphasizing good behavior as compared to simply enjoying your kids. When you do discipline, make sure you go the extra step and explain how rules express your values. Think of discipline as the stop sign that gets your child's attention. Now, it's not the end of your discipline time. Once you give the consequence and get your child's attention, now you can go on to the teaching phase where you train them in the right thing to do. We teach a process at the National Center for Biblical Parenting that's very much based on this, that uh, once we have our children's attention with a consequence, what we do then, uh, I, the conclusion of our discipline time, becomes the most important time in the discipline process. So be sure you give attention to that. You want to focus on rebuilding relationship, on why you have to uh, have the consequence that you're having, what the, what the basis for that uh, misbehavior is, what the value behind your rule. All of those things are important to help your child understand that the discipline aspect, the behavior aspect, is not as important as the training of the character that needs to happen. And finally, and this is number seven, don't use every scripture to reinforce a rule rather than express the big redemption story of the Bible. That's why we focused on that so much at the beginning of this. You know, the big story of the Bible is Christ's death on the cross to save us, the redemption that God uh, has for us. It's not about the rules that we follow to reach God. Uh, we don't have a kind of religion like every other kind where it's about the rules that we follow. Our religion is about the relationship that God restored with us.
He came hunting for us and made it possible to reestablish relationship with him. Now, it's tempting for Christian parents to quote every Bible verse that supports our rules. And I do that sometimes, and that's fine, but make sure your kids also hear the big story of the Bible, that true righteousness is something we don't have. It's not something that we possess, nor can we ever possess it on our own. It has to be given to us by Jesus. Now, the Holy Spirit, the good news for us there is that the Holy Spirit comes in and, and provides training in righteousness for us as we grow, as we stay close to Christ. Now, Satan would seek to deceive all parents, and his oldest lie is that God cares more about rules than about relationship. So I'd invite you to get my book, Parenting Unchained, Overcoming the Ten Deceptions that Shackle Christian Parents, because we spend a lot of time on that particular deception, uh, that, that God cares more about rules. While he does have rules and care about them, they're not most important. Relationship is. You can buy my book at Amazon. Uh, you can go to my website, which is d6culture.com, and get the book there. Uh, or you could go to the National Center for Biblical Parenting's website, which is www.biblicalparenting.org and find their great books, great other, other resources, including my book. And you can find out more about how to bring uh, the great seminar called Cooperation Consequences and Keeping Your Sanity to your church in the future. Uh, this will revolutionize uh, the way you work with your kids, give you some great biblical tools to not only discipline their behavior, but also connect at a heart level and see heart change, which we know ultimately affects behavior. Thanks for joining me. I'm Dr. Jim Dempsey with the National Center for Biblical Parenting. Thank you for joining us on Parenting Unchained. To learn more about Dr. Dempsey's ministry or to bring his powerful parenting seminars to your church or school, check out his website at d6culture.com. Listen next week at this same time and find new freedom for your parenting on Parenting Unchained.